I don't have to tell you this because this is true, I think, for all of us, but waiting can be very difficult and it can be especially hard for some of us. Um, we, we wait less today than in any other period in the history of the world. And yet we, I would say, are more impatient than ever. Um, transatlantic travel that used to take months now just takes a few hours by plane. Um, global communications that would take weeks or months to get a get word somewhere else in this country or around the world. Now they they are sent. The messages are sent and received in a fraction of a second. We can have these live video chats with people around the world with no delay. Meals that used to take hours to prepare, slaving in the kitchen over the hot stove, they're done in minutes in a microwave or an instant pot. Um, it used to take years for people to save up enough money to buy a car or to buy a, a house, but now we can buy it quickly, buy things quickly by, by taking out credit. And, and Amazon, I mean, this has been a game changer in terms of shopping, no lines to wait, and you buy it and you can have same-day shipping. That's just crazy. We don't have to wait much, but even the shortest wait can just drive us crazy. We don't like to wait on anything, including God. But listen, the reality is people have been waiting on God all throughout history. You, you read these stories in the Old Testament. We're going to be studying Genesis in the new year, and, and I'm excited about that, and I've begun to read through that. But you, you, you read these, and these are familiar stories, but then you start doing the math. Realizing how long these people are waiting for God to do what He says He's going to do. It, Noah waited a hundred years for the flood to come. hundred years. Now I realize there was a the unique time and people live longer, but still a hundred years. Abraham and Sarah, they waited 25 years for the birth of the son that God promised them. It's, it, it was more than 400 years uh, for, for that, that promise that God made to Abraham of giving them a land that, that his descendants finally took possession of the promised land. You see, between the Testaments, Israel waiting for the Messiah and what we're anticipating with Advent here and, and seeing he, he finally comes, but waiting. We too, brothers and sisters, though, we are waiting. We are waiting for Christ's return. This is what this passage is about. 2,000 years since Jesus ascended and, and still we wait for this promise to be fulfilled, for Jesus to come back. <coughs> but God's promises, they're never late as we think of late. They're never late in their fulfillment. They're, everything is always on time with God. He never gets stuck in traffic. There's never any kind of hiccups or delays. Seemingly long delays from our perspective are not delays at all with God. But this is... This is what, this is what we, the, the, the tension that we feel though when we get to passages like this. And, and if it was felt in the early church, it certainly has to be felt today, 2,000 years later, that we're still, we're still waiting. These, these opponents of grace that we looked at in chapter 2 over the last few weeks, they, they really went after the supposed return of, the supposed promise of Christ's return. That's what we'll, we see that in their mockery in verses 3 and 4 here. They, they ridiculed the delay and they scoffed. Where is the promise of His coming? He's not coming back. And, and this wasn't really a disagreement about 
eschatology, which is just a fancy word for kind of study of, of end times, of last things, and end times prophecy. That's not what this question's about. It's not a question about timing. It's not, it's not like we might ask and, and as we struggle to wait, Lord, how long, O oh Lord? We see so much, there's so much wrong in our world today. We say, how long, O oh Lord? When are you going to come back? When are you going to, when are you going to, going to come back and bring justice? And when are you going to come back and, 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 and usher in this new age? When, when are you going to do these things? That's not their question. Their, their, their question is, it, it, it shows their deep-seated desire to push Jesus to the margins. They thought life would be better. They thought religion would be better. They thought the church would be better. They thought their pleasures would be better if, if, it, if, they, if they didn't have Jesus in the picture. And so in their minds, Jesus is dead and gone. The last thing they wanted was to see people making much of Him and, and expecting His return. They were pleasure seekers. Jesus was this cosmic killjoy. So they wanted... They, they wanted this talk of Jesus and His supposed return to be pushed away. This is, this is what made their teaching so dangerous. What Paul talked about, or Peter talked about last chapter, these dangerous heresies. Any teaching that marginalizes Jesus is lethal to the church. And the height of all folly is to believe that life would be better without Christ. But this is, this is the way they thought. So Peter... By we get the time we get into this chapter, he's exasperated with with and by these these religious con artists, and so I I imagine Peter after chapter two in this kind of torrential tirade against these false teachers, him I, I I imagine and he's just been going after their their dangerous heresies and just their despicable behavior, and and, and I imagine him just taking a break to calm himself down before he starts chapter three. I don't know, this is just my mind. But pushing his chair back, standing up, taking a deep breath, closing his eyes maybe for a minute, looking out the window and seeing the horizon, just thinking, playing over in his mind all that he wrote to them in the first letter that he wrote and, and reviewing now the ground that he's covered in the second letter, taking all this in and sitting back down and with this fresh, bold Resolve, he addresses his readers with this term of endearment, beloved. I mean, there's this shift in chapter 3 in tone. Though the threat of these false teachers, it is real, it is serious, it's, it's imminent. He wants them and he wants us to, to lift our eyes up here in chapter 3 beyond the immediate landscape to the bright horizon of what awaits us. That's what he's doing here. So kind of the, the big idea of this, of this section, and really the chapter, is this, this promise of coming grace, of Christ's return, and, and all that comes with that, the judgment and the blessing, this promise of coming grace, it should have this strong pull on our hearts and on our lives. And I pray that it will for us. We're going to see four features of this grace to come in, the, in this passage today. The, the first feature is this, is that the promise of coming grace is to be constantly remembered by believers. See this in verses 1 and 2. So we've seen this already in, the, in this letter and the last letter. Remember, it's a key word in Peter's letters. Remember, these are truths that we as believers need to, we, we already know them, but we need to constantly be remembering them. It's things like our identity in Christ the, the work of Christ. We saw these in chapter 1. Here the promise of Christ in His return. 
And so it's interesting, Peter's writing about remembering, but he's talking about something that's future. He's talking about Christ's return. So the, the remembering, though, it has to do with the promise of this future event. And so don't, don't forget the promise by the prophets, by the apostles, as they, were, as, they, as they taught the words of Jesus. And so see it in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he's writing to the, he addresses him again as beloved four times in this chapter. Four times. He, he's emphasizing this close, deep, meaningful, personal relationship that, he, that, he, that has been established with these, with these people in, in Christ and, and His love. He's saying they, they are unbelievably loved by God in Christ. And Peter loves them too. They are, near, they are, they are, they are, they are on his heart as he nears his own death. And so, so as, you were, as we worked our way through chapter 2, you may not be feeling the love in Second Peter because there's some very harsh words for these false teachers in chapter 2. But, but love is the compelling motive for Peter as he writes this letter and both of these letters. And he gives us his purpose. So he, he wants to stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder. Their minds will be stirred up, stimulated, energized. Not sluggish, but... But, but aware and awake is like you get, I know some of you, you have that first cup of coffee in the morning and it gets everything going. If you, until you have that, there's just this lethargy uh, over you. Well, that's a, that's a poor analogy for what we're talking about here, but it gives some idea that this, this letter is not meant to be some kind of caffeine high for the church. But this is, this is to awaken our minds to engage with this gospel reality. So she wants to stir up their reminder. And, and this call to stay alert and remember, it centers on two things. Look in verse 2. That you may remember, one, the predictions of the holy prophets, and two, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So to, we're to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the, by the prophets. That includes all the Old Testament writings, I think, but those, but those prophetic words that that he said in chapter 1, we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the darkness. And so we're to remember those prophetic writings. Because what? Because they point to Christ. His coming, Jesus Himself said in the Old Testament, you, in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about Me. The Scriptures are pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament, the prophets are pointing to Him Jesus said in Luke 24, 20, uh, 27 and 24, we, that, that account of the, on the road to Emmaus, and, and that, that all Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they're all pointing to and find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So, so he's saying we've got, we got to remember all that God has spoken by the prophets, all that's recorded for us in the Old Testament, directing us to Jesus. And we're also to remember the words that are given by Jesus and and then taught by the apostles. So what Jesus spoke in person in the Gospels that is recorded for us and, and, and what He spoke uh, through His Spirit to the apostles and then passed on to the church. We, we have to remember this. Much of this message had to do with Christ's promised return and how do we prepare for that. So this is what He's saying. You, there's this truth that has to be remembered. And what's the common denominator between all of that we remember? We, we got this Word coming through prophets, Word coming through the, the living Word, Jesus Christ in person, the Son of God that got sent by Him. We have the apostles, the common denominators. that These are all vehicles of God's Word coming to His people. 
which is the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So the church, we're, we're to always be committed to remembering what God has spoken to us in the Scriptures. <coughs> it's, not, it's not about being innovative. Our message is not novel. It's not, it's not new. So, some of the packaging may change and we have you know, screens and stuff like that. That's, that's sort of irrelevant. But, but remembering the Christ-centered truth of the Word of God is always to be our simple focus. The Word, reading it, studying it, preaching it, teaching it, reading, hearing it, memorizing it, singing it, the ordinances that are, again, pointing us back to what God has spoken, always strengthening our footing as we move forward in the mission that God has given us. And so as we remember Christ together, a big part of that remembering is remembering His promised return. Even in the Lord's table, this is woven in. Every time we eat and drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So that's the, that's the first thing. There, there, this, this promise of coming grace is to be constantly remembered. This is why so many of our songs, I think this is part of the, 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 the reason we have so many hymns that we sing, they, they come back and the, often the last stanza is looking forward to the return of Christ. It's not accidental. That's, 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 that's very biblical. <coughs> Second feature of this coming grace that we see in, in, this, in this section here, the promise of coming grace will be doubted and laughed at by scoffers. Will be doubted and laughed at by scoffers. And she's going to talk about something from the, the present, something from the past, and something from the future that we need to, to note here. First, he informs us of something we need to know about the present. There's something we need to know about the present. You see this verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, above all, this is foremost of importance, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So I said... This is something we need to know about the present, and it sounds like Peter's talking about something in the future. There's scoffers will, future tense, I know grammar, they will come, and, and they will be in the last days. So how is this present? Well, as we're going to see, we are in the last days, as Peter is using this terminology. We, this is present for us. The letter of Jude, which is a parallel to Second Peter, turn over a few pages in your Bible, and you'll find the letter of Jude in verses... 17 to 19. This is just written a few, few years later after Peter wrote 2 Peter. But he quotes Peter's words here as already having come to pass. In Jude 17, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And what does he say? It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. He's saying they're here. We're in this time. The last days is simply the period of between Christ's first and His second coming. We're presently in them. There's nothing left to be fulfilled before Christ comes back. This is why we say His return is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And this is a time when there will be scoffers. These scoffers are the same ones we looked at in chapter 2. They are the false teachers, the wolves in sheep's clothing. I know some of you are thinking he said he was going to come back and take those last two verses of chapter 2, or last three verses. And I am, quickly, uh, I, as I was saying those words last week, I was having this conversation to myself. As they're coming out of my mouth on this pulpit, I'm thinking, why am I saying this? Why am I making this promise? Because uh, it's, it's not easy to just fold those things back in. But, um, but, but 
in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, if you want to turn back there, we, we have, again, this, without going into great detail, they, these false teachers, they, they crept into the church, they, they were close to the truth, they, they heard the truth of the gospel, they learned the vocabulary, they understood church culture, and they exploited all those relationships and all of that, quote, knowledge for their own personal gain. And that, that's the image as we, again, we jump back in in verse 20, chapter 2. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And I think that's what he's just describing. He's faulty. had exposure to the truth. They, they had knowledge of the truth, but they, they didn't truly trust in Christ. And for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And so there, there seemed to be, according to that, there seemed to be these degrees of, of judgment according to Scripture. And not just this place, but in other parts of Scripture we see this. And so all, all who don't benefit from Christ's uh, wrath-absorbing death will face wrath for themselves in a future judgment. That's true for, for everybody. But the but 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 if we if we unless we trust in Christ we will face this wrath. But the de, the de greater degree of light that is reje- rejected, the greater degree of judgment. That's the principle you see in Scripture. So all these false teachers they had rejected much light. They had they've been exposed to much truth of the gospel and they rejected it. And so that's I think what he's saying. And then verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them: the dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now the issue there, it's not about making spiritual progress or anything like that. This is an identity issue. Identity issue. A dog will act like a dog. A pig will act like a pig. Unbelieving false teachers are going to speak and act like unbelievers because that's who they are. That's all he's saying. And so these these scoffers, though, they're going back to chapter 3, they're people that are close... They're close enough to the church to mock it. They're, they're around and, 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 and among the church, but they're not truly of the church. And so they're kind of on the periphery. And from there, they, they, they begin to launch these, these grenades of criticism and mockery at the church. We shouldn't be surprised out of this I mean, by the presence of scoffers. Peter's promised it. They were there at the cross. Our Savior's bleeding and dying and, and on the cross, and what are they? They're mocking Him. There's scoffers there. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. They're just having a riotous laughter as Jesus dies on the cross. And, and so they're poking fun at Him at this sight. But, but just because Jesus is mocked, just because His promises are mocked, does not mean that God is not powerfully at work. No, the cross is exhibit A. There's mockery. There's scoffing. It's... It characterizes the crowd's response to Jesus. But was God at work? Yes, He was. And so for us, Peter's saying, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. Don't be, don't, don't be shaken by scoffers. They're going to be active. They're going to be very vocal. But, but this will not thwart God's plans. So one of their favorite targets, the scoffers' favorite targets, is, is Jesus' promised return. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now this, this isn't really a question. I'm not looking for an answer. This is a stinging criticism. 
to, to kind of paraphrase and sum up what they're saying, they're saying, how in the world can you believe this stuff? How naive do you have to be? You think Jesus is going to come back? He lived. He, he taught. He died. That's it. End of story. There, there's, there, there, and everything stays the same. Nothing has changed. In fact, in fact, history keeps, keeps plodding on now for thousands of years. No difference. This is their thinking. They're observing the world around them, and, and both historically and presently, and they assume that everything, uh, everything that is and has been, it will continue to be. This is the fancy word for this is uniformitarianism. And you sometimes will hear that word and even today, but uniformitarianism it assumes there's this unbroken cause and effect relationship, uh, uh, cause and effect throughout history, and this chain of events will continue, sim- will, will simply continue unbroken into the future. There's there's no disruption of that. The way things happen now is the way things will always happen. So we interpret the future by present life. That's uniformitarianism. That that and and this is very common in our own day and. And we're probably more affected by this than we realize. But this is not a biblical way to think. But this is how these scoffers are thinking. They're, they're thinking the day of the Lord's going to, the, the, the promised day of the Lord's going to involve this cataclysmic change. And we're looking around and thinking there hasn't been anything significant to happen since the death of the Father, since Abraham and Jacob. And there's no indication there will be. I mean, Jesus said he's, he, he, Jesus hasn't returned yet, as like he said he would. There's no indication he will, so he's not coming. And therefore, his promises aren't true. This is how they're reasoning. So notice a couple things about their, their, the, the content of their scoffing. One, their denial, it, it's full of these pious-sounding words. They, they use all the right theological buzzwords. They, they're slick. They, one commentator said, they deny the faith with stained-glass words. They talk about fathers. They, they talk about the promises. They talk about creation. They, they use words like sleep for death, which is a biblical way of speaking. They, they use orthodox terminology while promoting heretical theology. And, and they, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus said they would come, and, and this is true today. You have authors with PhDs in religion and, and in, in theology, and they deny the truth about Jesus, the plain and simple truth about Jesus. They use Bible words, use religious words, use uh, you know, scholarly words. But, but this, this is not uncommon, and it still happens today. Second thing you'll notice about their scoffing is there's no direct reference to the Lord Jesus made. And this is what I mean. There's this, there's this subtle but significant absence in, in their question they, and in their logic. They, they make this sweep. They're looking back to creation and the fathers and saying, Nothing significant has happened. And you're saying, what? God sent His Son into this world, this miraculous incarnation, the conception of of Jesus Christ, His birth, His sinless life, His powerful miracles, His amazing teaching, His transfiguration, His unjust death, the torn veil, the earthquake, uh, the open graves, Jesus' own resurrection from the grave. You're saying, nothing's happened. Really? There's this rewriting. This, that's why he says they deliberately overlook this. This is not an innocent, I didn't know, I just hadn't heard. No, they knew the story, but they deliberately overlooked this. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't seem to have 
These, these truths of Jesus' first coming have no significance to them. They don't even receive honorable mention in their logic. They overlook the most significant event in the history of the universe, and therefore they say, well, He must not be coming back then. What an incredible oversight. Well, it still happens today. So, so Peter's saying there's something we need to know about the present. Scoffers, they're going to be a reality. Second, he's telling these believers there's something you need to know and remember from the past. In verses 5 and 6, he's, again, he's not talking to the scoffers. and he, He's writing to the beloved. He's writing to believers. And he's, and he's not saying, here's some arguments to use against scoffers. You know, talk about creation. Talk about the flood. These are the, these are the points that you want to... That's not his point. I'm not saying you, you couldn't use those things, but that's not his point. He's saying these things to strengthen the stability of these believers in God's certain coming grace. That's why he's writing. So these mockers, they, they intentionally forget that God has worked in cataclysmic ways before. And he goes all the way back to, to these bedrock foundations uh, of, of a Christian view of history and of a biblical view of history. Something they deliberately overlook. The, the creation of the world out of nothing and a worldwide flood. Verse 5, they, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. God created the earth's atmosphere by separating water from water, Genesis 1, 6-10 tells us, and, 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 he, and He formed this inhabitable land by separating water from land. And, 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 he, and He did this, all of this by His Word, by simply speaking. I'm excited to look at this in, in, in the new year. And, and, the, and the same Word that spoke creation into existence, God spoke and it was done, is the same Word that reversed that process of creation uh, a process of creation at the flood. And He brought the water back. God brought all the water back into its place that, that was separated on days 2 and 3 of creation. And so verse 6, and that by means of these, water and the Word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So the Word of God which created all life is the same Word which, which all life, by which all life was wiped out in the flood except for those that were saved in the ark that God provided. And so these, these scoffers, they're deliberately ignoring creation and the flood. The water is God's water, and He does with it whatever He wants it to do, wants to do with it. It's, it's in the ocean, it's in the lakes, it's in the rivers, because that's where God wants it, where He put it. And when God said, cover the land, that's what it did. This is what He's saying. So Peter's point, just as... God catastrophically intervened with, with water during the flood thousands of years ago. He would one day intervene again, but next time it's going to be with fire. And, then, and so this is the third thing. He points us forward to something that we can count on in the future. The, the judgment of this fallen world. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, the world in which humans have lived in ever since the flood, uh, they're, they're stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So the, the fire will come on the day of, of judgment when God destroys the world, exposes or judges the works of unbelieving sinners. And so this, this, you go back to chapter 2, and remember all those warnings in chapter 2 that God's going to judge the ungodly. He's going to, he's going to rescue the, 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 the righteous 
and those who are in Christ. And so there's, so but what he's saying here, again, there's this even greater, there's this even more significant cataclysmic event that's coming. Greater than the global flood. But then he says, listen, the, the, the world, we're going to see the world that was restored um, after the judgment by water in an even greater and eternal way. This, this, this present, the present in, in heavens and earth are going to be restored after judgment by fire. So just as there was destruction, so there will be restoration. Christ's coming like the flood and the ark, it points both to wrath and renewal to judgment and rebirth. Jesus' saving work on the cross, it represents both the flood and the ark. The judgment of God brought about by sin and the rescue of God brought about by His mercy. Both are present and evident in the cross. But that work of Christ, it doesn't cancel out future judgment of unbelievers. God's nature won't allow for that. Sin must be punished and so so but this is what god has done god sent jesus to be our propitiation which just simply means to to be our substitute to take god's wrath that we deserve for our sin he took it on himself and suffered was punished for us dying in our place christ was judged instead of us christ was sacrificed for us christ experienced concentrated wrath on the cross so that we could know eternal love this is what Jesus has done. So either by faith in Christ we are saved from future wrath because, because our sin has been paid for by Christ or we will be condemned and punished for our sin in the, in the coming day of judgment. One way. And this is the great news and the hope of the Gospel. We all deserve to be punished for our sins. None of us deserve to be forgiven but it's available to all who trust in Christ. You can trust Him today. If you're, if you're in your sins, you can call out to Him and say, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, 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 there's no hope for me without Christ, and I need Jesus. I need His forgiveness. I need what He's provided for me through His death and resurrection. I trust in Him. And you can do that today. Try, pray, cry out to Him right now. Talk with one of us. We love to share more. But again, remember, Peter, he's writing to believers here. He's not trying to scare anybody. He's talking about fire and judgment and the melting of dissolving of these heavenly bodies. I know it's very graphic language. He's writing to fill them with hope and confidence. That's his point. And, and so regardless of the way things appear, day in and day out, regardless of, of the, the, despite the mockery of the scoffers poking fun at the idea of the promise of Christ's return, despite all of that, in the end, Christ wins. He wins. And so this brings us to the third feature of, of this promise of coming grace in this text. And, and it's this, is that it's guaranteed by God. It's guaranteed by God. Verses 8 and 9. There, there, there are many specific details about the future that we just don't know. And if you've got them all figured out and you've written the book on it, then good for you. Um, but God has not revealed everything to us. I mean, He's given us a lot. We know many things, but much still remains a mystery. Um, we can be sure of the big picture when it comes to Bible prophecy in the future, but a lot of the details we won't really know fully until they actually come to pass. And that's okay. 
We, we walk by faith. The, the, therefore, our, our, in our search for answers, we, we have to be humble. We have to leave room for disagreement on particulars when it comes to these things about future events. We, we shouldn't make these a, a basis for fellowship with other believers. That, that's what I'm saying. Ultra-dogmatism on the specifics and the details that aren't very clear in Scripture, th- th- that can be dangerous in the church. And so when we're not talking about primary doctrines. However, endless indecision uh, on doctrinal views isn't necessarily some kind of sign of godliness or humility either. And I I think that's very common today. The problem with many Christians today isn't an obsession with eschatological details. It's it's honestly, it's a willful ignorance of even the big picture. And it's just not even thought of. And it's kind of embarrassed by it. Like they... This is what the scoffers are saying. We hear that. We're just kind of shut down. It sounds very weird. And so I'm just kind of, they're not going not gonna to talk about it, not going to think much about it. Though we don't know all the details, we shouldn't hesitate to stand firm on what is clearly taught in Scripture. Christ will physically return. There will be a final judgment. The heaven and hell are real. The resurrection of our bodies is a certainty. I mean, these and many other things. We can disagree on some details, but, but these are certainties, biblical certainties that we can all agree on in, in this big picture. And so Peter, he's not answering all our questions here about eschatology. And I'm setting you up because if that's what you're looking for, he just, it, it's not told for us here. That's not his point. He, he, he is... But he does make clear to these believers, to us, that this promise of Christ's return, this promise of coming grace, it is guaranteed. It's certainty. And we shouldn't be spooked away because we hear people scoffing it. We shouldn't be uh, persuaded otherwise by, by false teachers. We, should, we can be confident in this. And so these, these scoffers, they're, they're basing their denial on a, on a kind of a human view of time. They're thinking this long delay of Christ's coming means He's not coming. And it means that God doesn't keep His promises. Where's the promise of His return? And from our finite human perspective, God does seem to be taking His time. And it has been a long time. It's been 2,000 years since Christ made this promise. But Peter reminds us as far as God is concerned, is concerned our finite perception of time is really irrelevant. And so he, he quotes Psalm 90, which is written by Moses, this meditation on time and eternity. And, and he says, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And notice, just notice that shift in pronouns. I mean, he's been writing to the beloved the whole time. But he's not even talking about them, they now. He's, he's saying, speaking directly to them. He used that second person pronoun, you. You, beloved. Every, everything, is, everything here is for believers in chapter 3, but he's focusing directly on the saints in, 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 in this shift here. And he says, we, you must not overlook this one fact. You know, the, 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 the scoffers, they deliberately overlook these facts. And here he's saying, there's a fact you must not overlook, that, that what comprises time on earth in no way impacts God's master plan. He is timeless. He is eternal. He is... He is not restrained by your clocks and your calendars and the dates that you, you have in your mind. That's not it. So, he, so God, He chooses both to enter into time and, and He exists outside of time. And so He enters in in the incarnation for sure and, and, he, and He's created us and we, we work on live on time, but He exists out of it. And so God doesn't think about time the same way that you and I do. 
What seems like forever to us is like a day with God. What seems like a moment for us is like a thousand years to God. And what, he, what, what that shows, and we think, well, so, so we're just like changing the, the dating system that we, that's not the point. Time and ability are related. That's what he's getting to here. Time and ability. Illustrations. Few of us can go out today and purchase a new home with cash. Uh, you know, a big new house and say, here's the cash for it. But given enough time, you can buy a home that's beyond your immediate ability to pay. You can work long enough, you can save long enough, you can eat beans and rice, rice and beans, you know, do the Dave Ramsey thing. And over time, you can buy a house, even with cash, it may take you decades, but you can do it. What we are not able to do in a short time, short period of time, we can do over a longer period of time. See what I'm saying? Time and ability are related. Or the other way, conversely, we may, able to, we may be able to do for a short period of time things that we cannot do for a long period of time. I can sprint to the back door, which will take me a few seconds, you know. I can't sprint for two minutes. <laughs> and you can I mean, you, we, there's limitations on what we can do. We can do things for a short period of time. We can't do for a long period of time. Not so with God. He isn't... His, so, so this, his, his um, uh, being free from the restraints of time is, is, is showing his, his power, his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He can take all the time he pleases because his resources are unlimited. He can do all kinds of work in a very concentrated time because his power is unlimited. He has no need to hurry. He can do in a very short period of time what would take us forever, what we can never do. Perfect example is creation. Speaks the world. It exists. He, he, just, he just speaks and everything happens. Not billions of years. And also God, is, God, is, God was able to compress an eternity of judgment and wrath into those few hours when Christ suffered on the cross. So that He took the wrath in concentrated form. See, see God's not limited by that. But then He's also he's able to delay the fulfillment of His promise for thousands of years. And the, and the plan never gets derailed. You know, we have good intentions, and we, but if we wait too long, like, it's, it's, yeah, it's not going to happen now. I waited too long. Well, that's, that's never true for God. There's never an interruption that, that messes up His plans. Never a surprise that, that throws Him off. That's, that's so, so He's challenging our, our view of the length of time uh, by seeing it according to who God is, His attributes, not according to who we are and how we think about time. That's what he's saying here. And, and, and so these scoffers, they, they thought the length of time, it showed God's inability or His unwillingness to bring about His promises. In truth, His delay shows the exact opposite. It, it, it has to do with His patience, His love, and His power. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, as we count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So seen from the Lord's perspective, He's not slow at all. He's patient. He's not tardy. He's deliberately delaying. He's not indifferent. He's, he's merciful. His plan is unfolding as He ordained it. So every single day that goes by is another demonstration of God's patience and love towards sinners. 
the only explanation for our salvation, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, is the patience of God. It's His patience. He's, he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, it's not suggesting that God isn't able to accomplish what He wills or wishes. That's not the point. I know the language, it, it, it boggles us here. There's mystery here, but it's not meant to be confusing. He's just he's saying, essentially affirming what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God, God desires all people to be saved and to, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his, it's his desire. God is sovereign over salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. That's crystal clear in Scripture. And yet God doesn't take pleasure in the suffering and the condemnation of sinners. He takes pleasure in their salvation. He's, he has this eager desire to see people saved, not to mete out uh, wrath and judgment. And so, so this idea that God is, is not willing that any should perish, it doesn't mean that He's keeping His fingers crossed and hoping against hope that, that some might be saved. That's not the point. The point is that God isn't giddy about punishing sinners. He, he, is ex- he loves to save sinners. And I, think, I think Peter's just giving us a window in God's character as a loving, patient just God. And, and, the, and that patience is meant to stir people to, to trust in Him. And that patience should show up, uh, should show us how we should view unbelievers. It's God's patience alone that is why I'm saved. And it's, gonna, it's God's patience it's, it's that He's waiting. He's waiting. And so, so we, we may not be excited about seeing people condemned, but we can sure be apathetic for those that haven't trusted. However, the patience will have an ending point, and that's the last thing. That, that God's delay is not eternal. There is this unrevealed to us, unrevealed limit to this present period of patience. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. He is patient. He's not desiring uh, the, the punishment. He's, he's eager to see, other, to see people saved, but the day of the Lord will come. And that's the last thing, the last feature, the, the promise of coming grace. It matters now and forever. It matters now and forever. This day of the Lord, I, uh, th- this is a, throughout Scripture, this is kind of a general title for a time of judgment followed by a time of blessing. It's not, not generally like a 24-hour period. It's be like back in my day, I mean kind of a time period, uh, that he's talking about here. And, and, and there have been many days of the Lord in Old Testament history, for instance. Times of judgment followed by times of blessing. And Peter's usage, though, it's, it's referring to this future day, specifically that final judgment that's yet to come. And this is the most common usage of this expression, day of the Lord. So Peter, he doesn't give us all the details that we might want and, and filling in all the blanks, but he tells us what really matters and why. And he answers these these big quick big uh, picture questions for us in verses 10 to 12. When will the day of the Lord come? What what will happen when that time comes? How will it come? And so what? And so let's look at those. First, when will the day of the Lord come? He doesn't tell us. <laughs> he doesn't tell us. He, he avoids the question. Rather, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come like a thief. And Jesus used the same vivid word picture in Matthew 24 talking about His own uh, arrival and judgment. And, and Paul uses this analogy in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So how does the thief come? 
knocking on the door, sending a little text saying, hey, just so you know, I'm going to be by there later tonight, uh, so just, just be ready. Uh, no, he, he, he comes suddenly, he comes unexpectedly, he comes without announcement, without warning. And so will the future judgment will, will begin when people least expect it. It doesn't come like the pizza delivery person, you know, at a scheduled, agreed upon time. It, it, is, it will be on God's schedule, but that schedule is not revealed to us. And, and from our perspective, it will be like a thief. Second, what will happen when the day of the Lord comes? Look at the, look at the way this is described. In verse 10, you have these three phrases that, that describe what will happen. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And third, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then look down to verse 12. He gives even more detail of this devastating picture. Verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I mean, it's not a, it's not a pleasant picture. And we're going to see it's, there, there's brightness that's coming. But just as the former world in the days of Noah was wiped clean in, in the, with the all-consuming floodwaters, so this present world will endure greater purging by fire. Third question, how will the day of the Lord come? Peter describes his coming destruction with these graphic words, roar burned up and dissolved, exposed. Um, we don't know all that this will entail. We have these descriptions like this, but the images here, they all refer to the sounds and the sensations and the effects of a disastrous fire, a wildfire. I'm just thinking of the, uh, uh, those out in California and uh, the awful fires that they've been uh, ravaged by out there and the loss of life and the and, and just so much devastation. But, but like, a, like a forest fire, it builds from those little cracklings at the beginning, and then it, it builds into this just tsunami of intense flames. And, and, it, and what does it do? It sounds like, if you've seen these, these videos of, of, of the, these wildfires spreading, it sounds like this roaring wind going through these trees and just engulfing these forests and you know, these fast-moving fires and flames and the sounds and the sights. and This is the analogy. And Peter uses it to describe this coming obliteration of the world. Everything will be wiped clear to make room for something new. And that brings us to the last question. So, so what? <laughs> so, so what should we do now in view of the coming day of the Lord? What, what does he say? He says what you need to do is you need to try to figure out the exact time. Get me, get a date, write a book, start a, you start a, you know, a little Facebook page and something like that. Does he quit your job? Sit on the back porch, sip some lemonade, and just wait until the skies open up. Is that what? He's, no. Verse eleven. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since everything in this world, all these things are going to be burned up, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What, is it, what does he mean by that? He's not, he's not saying what you need to do is you need to be really good people. Be, be really moral. Be, do lots of good deeds. That's not his point. He's saying because everything in this world is going to be burned up, what do you need to orient your life to? To God who is eternal. You orient yourself to God. You, uh, this God-oriented, gospel-centered, holy life 
set, set apart for God. This is, this is what you should be in view of this coming judgment. And at the same time, we should be, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. We're waiting for, not just passively loitering like we're sitting in the DMV or something, just waiting for our number to be called. That's not, that's not it. It's looking for it. It's, it's hoping in. It's, it's leaning expectantly into this. We're waiting for it. And we're hastening it. Now, again, that doesn't mean like we're making the, we're changing the timetable and hurrying God up. No. Acts 17.31 says, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by Christ. And so that it's not about changing that appointed time, or speeding it up. That's not the point. This is, about, this is about eager expectation, waiting, our activity while we wait. We're busy with His work, carrying on the mission that He's given to us, waiting for, hastening it. Verse 13, But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So again, for the believer, this, this prospect of this coming day, it's, it's the coming day of the Lord, it's not to be scary or alarming. We will not face wrath or judgment. We will not. Because Jesus has already taken care of that on the cross. There's, there's nothing left for us. We're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can condemn us. No, for us, for those who are in Christ, our Deliverer is coming. So we long for that day. We, we long, just like God led His people out of Egypt into the Promised Land, God is coming again. Christ is coming again. He will lead us out of this present world into eternal glory. And will there be this new heavens and new earth? We are, we are on the cusp of this page in history being turned. And, and, and we are eagerly looking for this time where righteousness dwells. Again, because Christ the righteous is there. Our hope is, is believers. It's not, it's not focused on God's judgment, though that's part of it. But, but it's it's for the eternal kingdom He will bring. Like we we you see old buildings that are demolished to make way for you know old dilapidated buildings. I don't mean some historical building, but old you know old old buildings demolished to make way for for a new one in its place. And in, a, in an infinitely greater way, that's what Peter is describing here. His interest is it's not to set a timeline. It's it's simply to assert that this present world is temporary. This future world that's coming is eternal. It's coming. And this is the same kind of thought that the Apostle Paul had when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. This is, this is, he's pointing these believers to hope. That's what Peter's doing. That's what Paul did to the Corinthians. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, what do we do? How do we live? I just say, I think there's great encouragement for us. Don't, don't, let, don't let the difficulties and the kind of routine, or sometimes very intense bleakness of life, dim your view of the life to come. Uh, be encouraged by the gospel hope that's here. There are there are very difficult things that you walk through in life and you struggle through and that you sometimes just plod through and wade through. Some of you are going through those things now. 
This, this is normal though, and it's, it's actually to be expected, as Jesus said in John 16.33, in this world you will have tribulation. But then He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So it's, it's a dual. He doesn't deny the reality of pain and suffering and difficulty. No, it's, it's going to be hard. You're going to have tribulation, but take heart in the midst of it. Not, I'm going to make it all go away immediately. No, but take heart, I have overcome that world in which you have tribulation. What is he saying? The, the gospel hope is not, it's not about denying the reality of pain and trouble. We just, you know, paste on a smile and say, well, bless God, and we, we, we just always try to be upbeat and, and PTL, and we just, oh, everything's wonderful. And No, there, we don't deny the reality of awful things in this fallen world. And it, What it is about, though, it's about embracing our Lord who has overcome it. You, you will not be overcome by the tribulation, by the trouble, by the pain, by the sorrow that you feel might overwhelm you. It's not going to happen. Because if you are in Christ, because you are in Christ, and Christ has overcome the world. He's, he's already overcome it. At the cross, our biggest enemies, sin and death, were defeated. And every sorrow, every hard thing, everything, every difficulty we have in this life, it is on account of sin and the death that ensues. And so we in, we in Christ are ultimately free from those things, and even though we don't always feel free. We, we, we are very aware of, of those things. But we, we have to consider what God says. And we accept it as truth. What does God say to us? He says, you are loved. You are accepted. You, you are set apart for God. You have a bright future. You have this glorious inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. And, it's, and you're being guarded by the power of God until you receive it. You, 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 have, you will never be forsaken. Your life is hidden in Christ with God. You're, 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 nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on with these promises, these assurances. With, with, its, with the bleakness of life, we, we have to keep moving our eyes upward to Christ and His promises. And, 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 and we're, we're looking forward because of what has been done. Christ has overcome the world. We look forward to the day when He returns. And it doesn't... And, it, and, and, and that feeling of being overwhelmed is gone. And we know, not by faith, but we know by sight the, reality, the full reality of what Jesus has overcome. And so here, here, here is what awaits... Here is what awaits those who love Him and love is a coming. I'm going to close with these words from Revelation 21 describing this future that awaits for us, this new heaven and new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And then in chapter 22, verse 5, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp for, or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is the bright future that awaits us. What, what hope. And then, he, and then he, this... this this uh, book is, ends in this way. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, do come. Come soon. We long for the day when, the, when, we, when we enter in this new heavens and new earth and this place where righteousness dwells, this place where we are with our Savior. Come, Lord Jesus. Until then, Father, I pray that You would fill us with hope, confidence, that You would direct our eyes away from just the, the dark circumstances around us, away from the, the inside of us thinking that our hope is in us and our ability to hold it together or to, to, to press on or to keep ourselves. No, to direct our eyes to Jesus, to, 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 that the promises of, that You've made to us, God, would, would have a grip on our lives. And You would, you would keep our, our hope anchored in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.